Welcome, everybody, to episode 45 of Generation Jihad. Bill, we're perilously close now to episode 50. That's amazing. Yeah, and 52 will be a full year. Um, it's We've certainly made a lot of progress here. I can't believe it's been a year. Uh, I, it's shocking. I can't either. Time just flies even during the pandemic, right? Yep. Um, I am, of course, Tom Jocelyn, and I'm here with Bill Roggio. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and we've been running FTD's Long Word Journal for more than a decade now. I always say more than a decade because, quite frankly, I'm not even sure how long it's been. It's been a long time in this long war. And Bill and I don't have a lot of groundbreaking new stuff for you this week, but we are going to rehash some of the stuff that we've covered in the past real quick because even though it isn't groundbreaking, uh, President Biden does face two looming decisions here. Um, These are his decision points. And I was thinking of this in the context of President George Bush's book, Decision Points, whether you agree with Bush's decisions he made or not. um, I think the framing of that is is right, that every president faces a series of decision points. If you think about all the decisions that a president faces, it's quite daunting. It's it's just an amazing array of decision uh, types of topics that a decision has to weigh in on and make decisions about. We're only going to talk about the stuff that's in our wheelhouse, which is mainly Afghanistan and then Iraq, a little bit on Iraq. The Afghanistan decision, of course, Bill, is the one that's fast approaching. We've talked about this. We were writing something in January and February that, that and, and doing it in our media appearances saying Biden had a decision that he had to make pretty quickly here. Then the media caught on in the weeks that followed, and there were a series of articles talking about this. Um, you know, one of the things that as I was just thinking about what we were going to talk about this week I think it would be helpful. Now, look, Biden's not going to listen to you or me. His advisors aren't going to listen to you or me. But our audience, we could pretend for our audience's sake that, you know, if we had the presidency here, what would we say? Um, And I would say that, you know, make sure you understand what the decision actually is. Because the way it's being framed, I think, by some people in Washington is is that there's this peace process that needs to be extended and that a U.S. presence in Afghanistan needs to be um, continued in order to stand up this peace process. Um, I think that's wrong. I don't think there is a peace process. I hear the words peace process and I, I recoil a little bit because I don't know what people are talking about. So I don't think that's the decision, right, Bill? There's, there is no, to, to date, we haven't seen any, any movement toward peace whatsoever. No, we haven't. Yeah, and th- this is really the problem in all of this. We're, they're, they're operating, policymakers are operating from the assumption and the wrong assumption that this is a peace process. It's not, it's, if you understand what it is, if you understand what the Taliban is doing, if you understand the Taliban's goals, you would know what the, you know, what you're looking at here. And that, that that's the key here. You can't make a, the proper decision. You're right, Tom, this is the pressing decision for the, the Biden administration. It's the one because of the May 1st deadline with the Trump, Trump administration's deal with the Taliban. Everyone calls it a peace deal. You and I call it a withdrawal deal. Um, I we uh, know we are correct in this because that's what this May 1st date is. It's it's the date that the U.S. has to withdraw and it's the date that the Taliban expect the U.S. to leave. It's the only tangible item in that three and a third page document, the agreement between the two. And, you know, Biden, you know, this uh, I don't. There's been so much misinformation on what this process is, whether it is a peace deal, whether the Taliban is. legitimately seeking to come to a settlement with the Afghan government. 
I don't expect Biden to President Biden to make the correct decision because there's so much bad information that has been fed to him and to both parties and policymakers uh, throughout the past over the past decade. So, um, you know, if he did have our if if we did have his ear, you know, uh, the first thing I would do is sit him down or sit his people down and, and explain that this isn't what you think it is. Yeah, you know, I was. It was just this week um, the United Nations Assistant Mich- Assistance Mission in Afghanistan released its uh, one of its quarterly or regular reports on civilian ca- civilian casualties in Afghanistan. And thankfully, the numbers were down a little bit in 2020 um, from previous years, but they still started surging again um, through the latter half of 2020. And I think that basically the title of the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan's report speaks to the problems here and the disconnect, this um, cognitive dissonance that is set in on all this, because the title of the report is Surge in Civilian Casualties Flowing uh, Following, I'm sorry, let me say that again, Surge in Civilian Casualties Following Afghanistan Peace Negotiations Start. Now, if you think about that, folks, why would there be a surge in casualties if these were real peace negotiations? And the truth of the matter is because there is... There are no real peace negotiations. The Taliban still has not had any meaningful talks with the Afghan government, doesn't recognize the Afghan government's legitimacy. Um, I hate to say it, but we were entirely correct in our critique of the February 29th, 2020 withdrawal deal between the State Department uh, under President Trump and the Taliban. It was nothing more than a withdrawal deal. They tried to dress it up and pretend it was something other than what it was. That's all it was. And that all gave us, all bequeathed to President Biden is this looming deadline of May 1st. And so what is the decision that President Biden really faces? The decision that President Biden really faces is not one between um, trying to stay to keep a peace process alive. The the decision is whether or not you're going to try to stay past May 1st, 2021, in order to further stand up the Afghan government as it's besieged and being attacked by the Taliban. And indeed, that is the case. You look at the United Nations Assistant Mission's statistics— and the Taliban is responsible for 45% of the civilian casualties in Afghanistan. That's more than any other party um, between them and ISIS-K, uh, ISIS-Horasan. That's over 50%. You know, By contrast, the Afghan government is um, 22% of civilian casualties are attributed to the Afghan government and its bombing rates. That tells you quite a bit about what's going on in terms of how the war has been conducted and, and gone about. As we reported and as we warned, the Taliban went on the offensive right after the withdrawal deal on February 29th, then went on the offensive again later in the year. And so the decision for Biden really is not about this phony peace process to date, which there's no evidence that even exists. It's whether or not you decide that you want to keep a remaining force in Afghanistan past May 1st, 2020 or not. You agree with that, right, Bill? Yeah, I do. I, that and. And if the, you know, obviously, if the Biden administration chooses to stay, then whatever facade of a peace process is is there or that you think might be there, it's all gone because that agreement says the U.S. has to leave. The Taliban has been abundantly clear in its English language messages that if the if there is a U.S. soldier on Afghan soil after May 1st, 2021, that it will be resume attacks against the uh, U.S. forces in Afghanistan. And I have no doubt whatsoever. I haven't haven't said this explicitly, but they'll certainly walk away from 
you know, so-called negotiations in Doha, that that will happen as well. So that's why, you know, that's... And, a, and on that point, there haven't been any real negotiations. Right, so that's, that's what hence the, the so-called, facade. yeah. Yeah, the, the, facade, the facade here, that's the, that's the point about cutting through to what the actual decision is for President Biden, because forget the nonsense, folks. You know, what is the actual decision? And so if, if American forces do stay past May 1st, now, what some people would say, there was a recent report by the Afghanistan study group that um, for opening lines endorsed this idea that there is some sort of peace process. I don't know what they're talking about. That just seems unhinged from reality to me uh, based on what's actually going on in Afghanistan. And then the first recommendation was that the U.S. should seek to renegotiate the May 1st withdrawal date uh, for all forces. Now, what I thought was, I don't want to say funny because it's not, none of this is funny. What was a, a joke about it was that that's really, as you said, and we've as we've discussed, that's really the only thing in that withdrawal agreement, which the report is basically endorsing. Um, that's the only thing that's concrete in the entire agreement is that the U.S. would be out by May first, twenty twenty, and you're saying that that needs to be renegotiated. Now, the Taliban, when that report came out on in early February, uh, the Taliban issued a statement on May uh, February fifth. I'm sorry, saying you know basically no, uh, don't try and don't try and renegotiate the Doha agreement. You got to stick to it. Um, and that's that. And if you don't, then it's basically all out war. That was the statement in English they released on February 5th. Their spokesmen have said the same thing, along, uh, made similar statements. Now, if the U.S. did decide to try to renegotiate, let's say the Taliban reneged on that and decided they were going to renegotiate. That's a big if at this point. I'm not saying it's going yeah, to happen. And, and why would they? I mean, if you think right. about it, why would it renegotiate? Right. That? But yes, let's assume let's that just they, play the game. Let's would. play the game. We'll know soon. We'll know for sure soon enough. But, you know, the. We are dubious on that, but let's say they do. Um, you know, they're going to try and extract major concessions, right? I mean, this is what this process, what we've criticized this process for all along, was that they got concessions in that deal, including the release of thousands of prisoners, at least hundreds of whom have been reportedly rearrested by the Afghan government because they rejoined the battle. Um, and you know, they they had other, you know, they had the withdrawal timeline that was set in stone, or at least they thought so, by the U.S. Now I've seen people. Um, on Twitter and elsewhere say that um, basically warning the U.S. not to unilaterally abrogate the deal of the Taliban. And I got to say, look, whatever President Biden decides, that argument is a joke. And this is what I was getting at, because the Taliban has done nothing. And I mean nothing to uh, make movements toward peace or to improve the situation, security or otherwise. Um, the counterterrorism assurances in that agreement, as we've you know, critiqued ad nauseum in the past, They've done nothing to live up to them at all. There's no evidence that they've done one thing when it comes to Al-Qaeda or the Al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan. So don't, don't tell me the U.S. is unilaterally, unilaterally abrogating the deal. That's, that's bullshit. Come on. The real, the real thing is whether or not the U.S. is going to get realistic about this part of the story. And that's what I would say that even this part of the story, the U.S. seems to be still clueless because there's all this talk about keeping the, the quote-unquote peace process going and trying to abide by the framework of this deal. When there's no evidence that this deal gave us any sort of peaceful framework. Yeah, that's correct. And t and just so um, if you're listening and you don't follow this as close as Tom and I, the Taliban and the Afghans, so you understand where this so-called peace process is. For the past, up until I believe it was yesterday or the day before, the Taliban and the Afghan government hadn't met for 35 days. Um, so it's not like they're sitting down trying to hash a deal. This is what, you know, what Tom and I have described. They're just trying to run out the clock on this May 1st deadline. You know, if if the Taliban was serious, there's a lot of things that would happen if the Taliban was serious about peace, if it was serious about keeping up with its commitments to this deal with the U.S. 
Um, I don't want to rehash all of that, particularly the parts with Al-Qaeda. But one of the things, if it was serious, there wouldn't be a 35-day delay. It would be sitting down with Afghan counterparts. They'd get, in, they'd get beyond the size, shape, and composition of the table and actually start discussing some meaningful um, issues. Uh, you know, and then, But that's not what's happening. Um, what you're seeing you know, is, to me, clearly the Taliban, again, trying to run out the clock on this. You know, you don't look at what they say that, you know, the Taliban uses the word peace in its in its statements all the time. That doesn't mean, it. you know, Taliban's definition of peace and our definition of peace and Western definition of peace are two very different things. The Taliban's definition of peace is we've won the war and we're enforcing the peace of the Taliban. People need to come to grips with that, that that's the actual reality of the, of the situation in Afghanistan and not try and impose what they want on the situation, but look at the realities of the situation situation itself. Yeah, and one of the realities is that the US and the Afghan government repeatedly pushed and asked for a ceasefire. And it's the Taliban that won't agree to a ceasefire. Um, so in terms of these people who are trying to claim the moral high ground and say they're working toward peace, well, excuse me, the Taliban is the party here that's kept this war going. They're the ones that there could have easily been a month-long ceasefire if they wanted real peace. To the have Afghan government has been begging for this, Tom. Of course. For, for over a year. Of course. And we, and we said that that would, be, that would be a major achievement, that if there was a ceasefire as of last February, it's been almost exactly a year now since this deal was signed, if there had been a real ceasefire at that point, that would have been a major triumph and would have been wonderful news for everybody. And it's still what we would want to see. It's still what I'd want to see. I still want to see a ceasefire, you know, even a temporary halt, a serious temporary halt to hostilities in order to um, have real negotiations. And the fact of the matter is they won't do it. The Taliban won't do it. So, and and they, if they're not doing it now with 2,500 American troops about that remaining and, and set to be withdrawal, at least according to this deal, I don't know. If they're not willing to do that before that time, I don't know why they're going to do it after. So, this is all in the context of if you're President Biden, get realistic here. You know, you have two, you have really two options. Um, one is you leave, you leave as of May 1st and say, you know, look, we're out. Um, I, even if he did that, as we've said in past episodes, I would say to President Biden, don't do that as, as if you're living up to this deal with the Taliban. I, I wouldn't pretend that because the reason is because you're whitewashing the Taliban as part of that deal. And the Taliban has done nothing to live up to any sort of terms of peace here or, or and hasn't made any moves toward peace whatsoever. And you don't want to pretend like they were a legitimate actor and that they lived up to their end of the bargain. And that's why you're leaving Afghanistan. Don't do that. Um, you know, if you're going to get out, just get out. But um, the other part is to stay past May 1st, in which case I think they're going to have to you know, explain why a Taliban hasn't lived up to their end of the bargain um, and hasn't done anything, hasn't done anything meaningful toward peace. Um you know, that's that's the bottom line. And part of that would be explaining how the Taliban hasn't betrayed al-Qaeda after all these years and hasn't become our counterterrorism partner as the previous administration, Trump administration, tried to portray the Taliban as being our counterterrorism, our de facto counterterrorism partner. Now, again, you know, Bill and I have always said, too, by the way, that if there was some betrayal there, right, Bill, if something happened where the, there was real evidence of a Taliban break with al-Qaeda or real renunciation, we'd be all for it and we would report it immediately uh, and, and celebrate it. Just hasn't happened. Um, and there's no reason to think at this point that it's going to happen. Now, maybe the U.S. is going to pressure the Taliban behind closed doors once again to do something along those lines. But the bottom line here is, from President Biden's perspective, you, you face a decision. That decision has to do with May 1st. Get realistic about what that decision actually entails. Yeah, Tom, I couldn't agree more. Just the, the, un, look, the having an understanding of what's happening. This is 
this is what I don't know about the with the Trump administration. Did they know it was happening and and did they just cut this deal with the Taliban so it could, you know, so end its and so called endless wars, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, but let me it- let me just answer that question for you right there. Okay. So I do have some sources on this, right? And part of the reason why we were I was so confident in being critical of this deal was because my sources said that it was in fact nonsense. That it was just that. It was pretext to fulfill a campaign pledge to get out of Afghanistan. That it, And there was nothing going on that was really going to hold up, hold the Taliban to account here at all. And this was all just trying to put words in the Taliban's mouth and whitewash the Taliban as the U.S. left. And at my argument to those people at the time, publicly, this is the one thing, you know, I always say this, what I say in, in private is what I say in public. You know, my argument publicly and privately at the time was just get out. Why, why, why yeah. should Taliban, right. why pretend, you know, that I said that very clearly. I said that in everything we ever wrote about it or said about it. And it's still an option for President Biden, right? It's still an option to just get out instead of pretending this game, uh, playing this game. Um, but I think there's a lot of people in Washington that are committed to this idea that there is a peace process because you see it reported all the time. And I just don't know what they're talking about. I mean, this is this is what a the cognitive dissonance, this disconnect between reality and 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 what the way people in Washington want to see it. There is, I mean, there's just nothing along those lines at this point you could point to. When I when somebody you know a reporter asked me a question the other day about this, and I said, "Well, just hold on a second, you know." If there was a real peace process, I'd be all for it. But, but where is that? What are you talking about? You know, just the Taliban showing up in Doha on occasion doesn't make for a peace process since they're not, they're not having any real talks with the Afghan government and they're on the offensive and attacking and, and threatening provincial capitals and all that. So anyway, that's, you know, look. Yeah, Tom, the Doha thing, you know, like I, I, this is always what surprised me about that. I don't I don't understand, you know, talking with reporters, talking to individuals. You know, Doha's an automatic win for them. Every time they show up, they look like an official government. They look like, you know, it's it. this is the show part of it. And you would think that people who have an understanding of the world, you would think politicians and journalists and analysts would actually understand what Doha is and what it means to the Taliban and the optics of it. And they would see right through this. And, um, you know, it's, it just always shocks me. Of course, you know, the Taliban essentially have an embassy or they call it their political office this is an embassy in, in a foreign country when they're not even a government. I mean, that's a sweet deal. And if you're the Taliban, you're going to take it and that people can't recognize Doha and for what it is and what's happening at Doha for what it is, then either they're ignorant or they don't want to recognize it because they're just beholden to this this notion of peace. I think it's well said. I think it's also a reflection of what we have been discussing for years and, and have given up now on, on trying to get the U.S. government to get right. Is this Taliban revisionism and and apologia, which is set in in a lot of places, and it's just it's it's thick. You know, some of the times I've testified before Congress, some of the other witnesses have repeated points that are just absolute nonsense. One witness, for example, you know, I outlined the case, the historical case up through the current day of the Taliban's close alliance with Al Qaeda, and you see. Um, you know, I see in some of the comments and others places, people, you know, who have drunk from the Taliban apology, uh, well, you know, they sort of recoil at that because they don't like those facts. But there's just a, an overwhelming number of facts. And this witness at this one hearing, you know, she put up her arms and said, well, you know, lots of people work with Al Qaeda in Afghanistan. So what, basically? And I just thought, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, what kind of nonsense is that? Talk about ad hoc apology for the Taliban. Man, oh, man. I mean, I, and it doesn't mean you you're in favor of keeping the U.S. there 
or keeping the war going from the U.S. perspective. It's going to keep going from the jihadi perspective. But um, you don't have to endorse the U.S. mission there or say this is a war effort that's worth fighting, for example. I mean, I, if you listen to us, we're critical of it in various ways, too. But that's just really empty Taliban apology. It's just really amazing to hear. And I think that's part of the reason why you and I have our haters in the, the counterterrorism. It's in some parts of the counterterrorism world in some of the quote unquote expert community, you know, some of these people who have, you know, built these models of the Taliban and Al Qaeda, which are just complete bunk, you know? Yeah. Tom, our, our, one of our biggest apologists, you know, I testified alongside Zalmi Kalazay in 2016. I know I tell this story often, but 2016, he, he and I couldn't have been more agreement with the Taliban and its relations with Al Qaeda and relations with Pakistan. And then as soon as with less than two years after he's named the special representative for Afghanistan reconciliation and completely flip flops on the issue with no, no um, explanation whatsoever other than Taliban is uh, our counterterrorism partner and we can rely on them and Pakistan is great. And this is this is what we encounter day in and day out. And it's it's very frustrating and it's demoralizing. And it's it's a reason why I have a high degree of cynicism when it comes to looking at issues like this uh, to this day. Yeah. And, you know, um, my source has also said that the State Department in Kaloza got uh, failed to get the Taliban to issue a public renunciation of Al Qaeda. Uh, which should be telling, right? Um, the fact that the Taliban wouldn't do that is telling. But of course, we're not supposed to not supposed to think that way. We're not supposed to think in terms of logic here. Anything is no, um, logic so, doesn't look, matter. No. So here we are in the end of February. The deadline is fast approaching. If the Taliban does reverse itself some for some reason and says they'll extend the withdrawal timeline and the agreement for six months and you know whatever the terms they offer in that, we'll report that and of course give our analysis of that. But so far, right now, the Taliban has rejected that in its public statements. There's no reason to think at this point that that's in their interest. But, you know, they would probably extract concessions if they did if they did get the uh, agree to that. Um, either way, Biden, President Biden should have clear be clear eyed about what the decision he faces. And the thing is, if he keeps forces there past May 1st now, um, the problem for him is that this there's no reason to think that the war is going to be turned around suddenly or anything like it. It's then an indefinite commitment, which then leads you back into the endless wars political rhetoric. And so then every so often, there's going to be this line of attack on him that he didn't get out of Afghanistan. You could see sort of a Trumpian challenge to to him uh, in 2024 saying, you know, we were going to get out of Afghanistan. You kept us there. So that's the politics of it, which is which is messy, you know. Um, and of course, the Trump, Trump President Trump didn't get the U.S. out of Afghanistan, but he he had this poison pill of an agreement, which was supposed to do so. Yeah, and Tom, one more thing too. The I the the only positive about this deal is that the U.S. could with if it could withdraw from Afghanistan without withdrawing under fire, and if President Biden is committed to getting U.S. troops out of Afghanistan, I would strongly recommend that he would do it before the May 1st, because then you're putting American troops at risk. If you decide to abrogate this deal and then withdraw six months later, and if the Taliban doesn't come along, you know, doesn't says, sorry, that one's over. We're going to fight even on your way out the door. You're going to lose American soldiers. Um, you know, it, is it honorable? No. Is it a, a preferred outcome? No. But if there's one reason to leave prior to May 1st and the U.S. to stick to that deal, it's that and that alone. Um, it's again, all the problems with the whitewashing the Taliban. I'd love to see the deal scrapped just for those reasons. The Taliban relationship with Al Qaeda, Taliban, you know, sheltering Al Qaeda for 9-11. I think this deal is just horrific for all those reasons. 
But, you know, if, if uh, American troops are go if they're going to leave Afghanistan anyway, I'd much prefer to see them leave, uh, leave in an orderly fashion and not do it while under fire. Yeah, that, that was the newsletter I wrote for the dispatch a few weeks back of my weekly newsletter. I said I said just that, that, you know, if you do keep them past Bay first. And I've said this to reporters and others that, you know, that the problem there is obviously that the Taliban is going to take the gloves off and start coming after Taliban al-Qaeda will start coming after American forces. And then you're only one roadside bomb or one suicide bomb or one attack away from having a, a body count again on the American side that drives headlines inside the U.S. And then, you know, but you back to the original question, what are we doing there? You know, so that's the point about about all this, this discussion once again about Afghanistan is that the decision matrix needs to be clear eyed. It can't be muddied by this nonsense. And and the president should actually know what his choices are. And we'll see. We'll see what he decides. And we'll see. We'll see if those choices are given to him in a clear eyed uh, fashion or not. Let's move on to Iraq real quick, because, you know, one of the things we've always said is you could contrast, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan and Iraq are the two conflicts that define the post 9-11 era from American perspective and decision making within American circles more than any others. Of course, there are other conflicts, but these are the two that define how America do, uh, makes decisions, how presidents have made decisions about these wars. And in Iraq, it's a different scenario where, you know, the U.S. didn't seek a deal with ISIS or the predecessor to ISIS to withdraw from Iraq the first time around in 2011. And it shows you how much Taliban revisionism and apology has sunk in in, in USG channels that, um, that such a deal became the, this, the, the, with the Taliban became, uh, you know, the quest for it became a dogma, basically. It became dogmatic that we needed such a deal in Afghanistan. Yeah, it was almost uh, a 10-year quest, right, Tom? I mean, Yeah, the U.S. chased the, chased the Taliban around and, and said, we need to have a deal. And the Taliban never came to the U.S. and said, we need to have a peace deal. It was the U.S. the U.S. desperately seeking one from the Taliban, which, again, says I think says a lot about where America is and its power status in the world today, by the way, or lack thereof. But, um, you know— Putting that to aside, the point is that the U.S. doesn't have the same sort of servile withdrawal agreement with ISIS or anybody else in Iraq that they did with that they formed with the Taliban. Um, but you know, the, the U.S. is still under attack there. You know, the, you have the ISIS presence, which the U.S. is nominally is there just to fight ISIS and stand up the Iraqi government against ISIS. But of course, the Iranian-backed militias, which is something you were early in warning about, Bill. Um, Shiite militias there have been attacking the U.S., including recent weeks. You had the attack in Erbil, the rocket attack, where there were Americans wounded, and then uh, contractors are working for the Americans. Were, uh, I think at least one was killed. One was killed, yeah. And several others injured. Then there was the rocket attack on the U.S. Embassy. Um, so the decision point here for President Biden is a little bit different. And there is no withdrawal deal, no withdrawal agreement or, or deadline to get out. But American forces are still in peril, and there's no clearly articulated mission or desire to keep them there long term. And so... Uh, and but the point, the, the wrinkle here is that it's not the jihad, the Sunni jihadi enemies who are the main threat at the moment to Americans. That at any point that could change. But in recent weeks, it's been these militias that are suspected of being in the Iranian orbit that are doing that, uh, doing these attacks. But um, the countervailing policy preference of the Biden administration is to strike a nuclear new rejoin the 2015 nuclear accord with the Iranians or get a new deal that's similar to that. And you can see in some of the rhetoric from Biden administration officials that they've basically been downplaying Iranians, the Iranians' role in all this, or saying they don't want to be quick to prejudge it or this or that. Um, and you can see that there's there's definitely a tension there between the policy desire in terms of of 
re-entering a, a nuclear quarter, forming a new one with the Iranians and the American presence there in Iraq. And so that's the decision point for my mind, Bill. I don't know what your thoughts are on this. If you're laying it out for Biden, this is what the decision matrix actually is. That you, you have to square the American presence there with the Iranian threat. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, in just two additions, you know, you were um, saying, you know, we don't have a deal with uh, ISIS. So, you know, look, I, I guess the U.S. could cut a deal with uh, a various Shia militias, but then new ones pop up under new names. And that's why we don't, quote unquote, know who's actually conducting these attacks. When we do, they're just rebranded and militias for, uh, you know, rebranded to these uh, esoteric names for uh, plausible deniability. You all know it's a Siva Hawk or or, uh, you know, the Promised Day Brigade, or, 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 you know, all these other groups that are uh, Harakat al-Nujaba and all these other groups um, that are that are backed by Iran. Or we could cut a deal with the Iranians, and that may be, actually be part of it, Tom, right? I mean, part of this nuclear deal, the Iranians may, in the background, be demanding that the U.S. leave. But you're right. The, the, there isn't a, a pressing need for the U.S. to withdraw from Iraq. It's not it wasn't, you know, we don't have a deal. We don't have anything that we have to agree. Iraq has almost become like a Somalia in some respects, right? When the U.S. actually based troops in Somalia, you had a small number of troops there in an advise and assist mode um, come under, you know, somewhat frequent attacks. But, you know, it's a sustainable operation, very, very low casualties. That's what Iraq has been. It's, 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 it's not, you know, Iraq, we... Go back. You, you had said uh, Afghanistan and Iraq are the defining um, uh, wars in, in uh, you know, post 9-11 for the U.S. when looking at decision making. And, you know, Iraq was at the front page from 2001, probably up uh, up until recently. But Afghanistan really has become the story in this war because of U.S. involvement has really, you know, it's a the, the sun has set on the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. It's just sort of we're operating in this twilight. I'm sorry, in Iraq, we're operating in this twilight environment, whereas with Afghanistan, um, there's a lot more pressure. And then that deal, you add that deal to it, that, that makes a decision point come through. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the reason why the, the story about Afghanistan is different is because of this um, muddled or confusion about the Taliban and Al-Qaeda that's on the one hand of – Two, of course, is the longevity of it. You know, been there since 2001. And really, no American leader is able to articulate to the American people why we're there, what we're doing, or why it's we should be there any longer. In fact, you've had political rhetoric now for several years in which the war has been vilified. So on the one hand, you have American troops going off to Afghanistan and serving this war that multiple political leaders have um, – not just questioned the mission, but actually criticized it in harsh terms, you know, including former president of the United States. And with the prevailing um, sentiment that these quote-unquote endless wars need to be quote-unquote ended, which of course we've debunked that idea in the past, um, you know, I mean, there's really no, nobody's articulating the American people what what has to be done here. And that's why, that's why the decision matrix has to be simplified for President Biden, I think. You know, because if you do decide to keep American troops in either one, either one or both of these theaters in Afghanistan past May 1st or in Iraq indefinitely, you need to explain to the American people why you're doing that. You need to have some sort of game plan for doing that and understand how that fits into a bigger picture. It can't just be this ad hoc, we're going to keep things going on autopilot. There has to be some sense of what you're doing um, and why you're doing it. And I don't, I don't know. I, I think that 
if he did decide to keep troops in Afghanistan, for example, I worry that he'll have a muddled understanding of why it is because of all this confusion about the so-called peace process and everything else, you know. And that's why I would I would just say, look, simplify the decision matrix. Here's what the reality of it is and make a make a firm decision. Yeah, I couldn't agree agree more. Like, I mean, what are we in Iraq for at this point? I mean, Islamic State supposedly has been defeated. Um, what's the whole point? So we're training, you know, train, advise, and assist Afghan security forces so that the Islamic State doesn't come back. Check. Okay, that's reasonable. We're, um, you know, provide- and they're there. They're there with a low grade insurgency now, as it is. Exactly. We're gonna have some up. We're gonna have some updates on the status of ISIS and what we know and don't know. And there's evidence that the mothership of ISIS in Iraq and Syria is still part of a global network, uh, ISIS network. So there is there is a security story story there when it comes to the presence, like you're saying, to keep keep the lid on ISIS, basically. But you know, explaining that, and articulating that to the American people, and justifying it, and understanding what that actually means. That's a whole other thing. You know? Right. I mean, and then do we get into mission creep issues? We need to, you know, keep prop up the Iraqi government. Well, how much is our presence there really doing that? Um, check Iranian power. Well, if we're looking to cut a nuclear deal with Iran, um, you know, that's certainly not the um, not the argument you want to be making. And so, yeah, it's again, I agree with you wholeheartedly just come up with a simplified reason if you're going to stay in iraq come up with a simplified reason obviously not simplified to you know that doesn't mean made up i mean just a a, a clear reasoning a reasonable a reasonable yeah a reasonable understanding of what yes. we're doing you know yes you know not not some complex we need to maintain bases to check the iranian land bridge to syria and the levant and things of that nature but just what are the U.S. interests in, in Iraq? Be clear about them. Communicate them to the American public. Get them to back if there is a continuing mission. If the administration decides the U.S. presence isn't warranted in Iraq anymore, well, then make that decision as well and explain it to the American people. But don't be surprised if, like, say, in 2013-14, you get the rise of the Islamic State again or some other group where the Shia militias start taking over or something to that effect. Um, you know, just be forewarned that these are the possibilities. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I know we're definitely concerned about um, Iran increasing its hand even further in the coming years as a pot one possibility for the Middle East for sure. But you know, that's you know, you have to articulate what the U.S. mission is in Iraq and elsewhere, and what we're about, what we're doing. And as you said, there is a tension. There's a tension, or as we both said, there's a tension between, on the one hand, seeking this nuclear accord with Iran, and on the other hand, any sort of mission in Iraq that's putting a lid on Iran. You know, you have you have to attention in the sense that you have to at least understand why you're doing both those things and how that fits into a broader picture or scheme. And I'm not sure that policymakers have a clear understanding of that or or really are thinking through those lines. And maybe maybe it's just going to be a capitulation to Iran, you know, across the board who, who knows. I but, wouldn't be surprised. Um, I mean, I actually expect that, but I could be wrong. Um the you know, US the particularly US military has wanted to maintain a presence in Iraq. Um, you know, for various reasons, and um, they they've seemed to have gotten their way on that issue, um, over the last, you know, since getting re reengaged in Iraq in two thousand fourteen. So you know, it's it's interesting. You brought up. Um, I'd like to diverge a little bit from our usual topic matter here for a second. Um, sure. Yeah, if we're for closing minutes of this podcast, you brought up what are American interests in Iraq, and and elsewhere, and how do you think about this stuff? And this is what I've been 
struggling with here for a while now in terms of thinking of this in terms of the foreign policy schools of thinking or thought. Um, you know, one of the things I've been exploring in my own career, what I'm doing is writing about how American foreign policy is is thought about or taught and, and the constructs that people use for, for, for discussing it. I just don't find any of the established schools of thought to be very convincing. Um, you know, there's all these isms. Um, you know, you know, one of the things that you and I have been accused of being, I will say accused because it is a smear or a pejorative of being neoconservatives in the past and belonging to neoconservatism. Neither you and I, you and I, neither you nor I have ever self-identified as neoconservative, just so anybody understands. And I don't even know what the hell that means, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, it is a pejorative. It's meant to invoke, evoke um, all sorts of um, nefarious scheming. And I, I don't even know. It's just, it's just, it's a dirty word at this point. I'm going to write about that a little bit more. I'm not articulating it very well here, but it, it is, it's become a pejorative that doesn't really make any sense. And it's a smear word. But then you have the so-called realist or realism and you read their stuff. And I just, I read their stuff on, on these issues. And I'm like, boy, that doesn't. It's very really, unreal, Tom. It's I, very unreal. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's not realistic. The realists are not realistic a lot of times, you know, um, you know, and a lot of what they say is not adhering to the facts. And I, I've been reading up on this quite a bit, and I read some work by Walter Russell Mead, whose stuff I, I do enjoy reading, and I think he's got a lot of smart things to say. And, you know, he, he provided a construct that within America, there are these four schools of, of foreign policy thought. And I'm not going to summarize them all here, but it, it's generally, I think he, he's probably right in one sense, but it's not really, what I would say is it's not really thinking as much as it is sort of habitual habit or desire or basically ideological preference that then basically these schools of thinking then are built around the original ideological preference as opposed, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's not scientific. It's not empirical. You actually just, I I never heard this before. It actually makes a ton of sense now that you, uh, you mentioned this. I've, I've never, when you, well, again, we're not, we've never actually had this conversation, so I'm going to have a hard time articulating it. But now putting it in that we're, perspective. We're doing this off the cuff for the podcast. Yeah. This, is, this, is the, this, is, I, this is why I threw this curveball at you here because I wanted to see what your off-the-cuff thinking would be. Go for it. Yeah, no, no. I, I'm not even going to go into detail because I haven't really formulated this, and I, I really hate to do You know I hate to do this uh, first time thinking it through. But looking at realists or looking at isolationists, now that I, I have a better understanding once you put it in that perspective. I can't articulate why, but things make a little bit more sense. You see that they've, you're, they follow sort of a – a set policy that they very, very rarely diverge from, if ever. You know, my point is that this isn't this isn't unique to any one of the schools of thinking. There is this general reflexive attitude toward foreign affairs and domestic affairs too, and people then cook the books basically to fit that reflexive desire. You see it when it comes to policy making inside the U.S. and policy desires inside the U.S. as well. Um, and now in the raging culture wars and everything else we're seeing online, it just seems to me that an awful lot of this is confirmation bias. And a lot of the foreign policy schools of thought are confirmation bias too, you know? Um, and the interesting thing is when you look at some of the critiques of what's happened post 9-11, built, built into those are deep are sometimes deeply conspiratorial ideas about how all this all works and deeply biased ideas about how all this all works. Um, you know, I've, uh, somebody who I've very critical of because I don't think he's a thought leader in any sense of the word. He's just a political hack, an ideological hack. Is somebody like Ben Rhodes who worked for President Obama. Um, you know, I've been reading through his stuff and reviewing his recent interviews. And boy, oh boy, I mean, that's just a guy who 
there's no there's no A to B thinking there or logic. It's just he has caricatures in his head of Republicans and this and that. And he just reduces all that down to these caricatures and then says, you know, uh, ta-da, you know, we're we're working against the what these nefarious characters are trying to do with American America's role in the world. Um, and I don't know, it's kind of disgusting to me. And I think, you know, one of the things I'm going to write about and going to talk about probably on this podcast and other forums going forward is, you know, my exploration of it, all this. Um, because I do think it's important to get at this. You know, one of the things you see recently is, for example, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced you know, he's going to have this new foreign policy school called conservative realism. You know, that's what he wants, conservative realism. Well, I don't know what that means. You know, uh, the deal with the Taliban yeah, the force Marie, wasn't, wasn't exactly realistic. You know, <laughs> the negotiations with North Korea weren't exactly yeah. realistic. You know, there's a lot that was not realistic here about this. You know, in other, in other ways, it is it is realistic. So I don't, I don't know what that means, and it's just not properly defined. It seems to me that the entire foreign policy conversation has really become unmoored from any sort of concrete factual discussion. It's now way off in all these different directions that it's all about reinforcing, you know, somebody's biases and and thinking in terms of caricatures, whether you're Ben Rhodes or somebody else. It's prevalent, you know. He's just a good example of that, I think. And it's, uh, I don't know, I think it's problematic. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Tom. This gets back, you know, to the point, you know, uh, look, uh, you definitely think through these things uh, a little bit more than I am so focused on the day-to-day. I don't get a chance to kick back. So when you throw that curveball at me, I'm I'm swinging and missing. But, you know, it gets back to the argument that we, we constantly discuss that, uh, you know, people are putting policy first over the reality, policy over facts. And, I you know, that's what I think these – um, you know, come to realize that these these foreign policy schools thoughts, that's what they're doing. That's what all every single one of them are doing. They're putting their policy preferences over the reality. So to call it, you know, conservative realism or realism using that word, it's just it's Orwellian. I mean, you know, we don't you know, the, the Ministry of uh, Truth and the Ministry of Love should come out and, the, and endorse the these schools of thought. And it's uh, it's very frustrating to see and to, to hear you and I being slandered is. What I would say is if if um, it, by the way, I, I've I, what I've done is I've tried to not um, just as that those types of terms are projected onto us. I try not to project those yeah, onto others. I agree. Right. So so if some if somebody, you know. Except for the the Taliban apologists, that's a term. yeah. That's that, term. But that's we know we know that we know very who they are. specific. <laughs> we know who that's they not are. a school but, of thought. That's an right. actual right. someone who is doing a very specific thing, which right. is Taliban but, apologists. But in, ter- but in terms of you know, like there are people who are progressive, let's say, um, from their domestic policy and foreign policy. Friends of mine who are progressive, colleagues of ours, you know, sure, uh, current or for- former colleagues, you know, um, and I talk to them about foreign policy, and I agree with a lot of what they say, right. Um, you know, and then there's parts I don't agree with, you know, and then I'll talk to a conservative and there'll be parts of what they say I agree with and then parts I don't agree with, you know. And so what I'm saying is instead of having this more um, empirical, um, fact-based discussion about issue to issue, um, it seems to me like a lot of this is just ideologically reductionism, yeah. you know, ideological <laughs> reductionism, you know. And it just gets tiring. I mean, it's part of the reason why I'm not very active on Twitter, for example, because I don't need I don't need to get into these mindless conversations about this stuff. You know, there's a lot of good people on Twitter, by the way. But, you know, a lot of the stuff you see, too, is just this, you know, you know, you have somebody say, oh, we just got to get out of Afghanistan. I'm like, OK, you know, I didn't you know, if you listen to my criticism of the Afghan war, I'm not exactly I'm not the one keeping us there, Bob. 
you know, uh, but uh, you see what I'm saying, right? I mean, a lot of this is just reducing things down to what people want to believe as opposed to actually thinking about what's going on. I really don't want any part of it, and it's a big reason why I'm I do as little as possible on Twitter. I'll go in, I might push something, and then you might not see me for six or seven days. I don't think I've been on Twitter for like eight or nine days, and I think I'm a much better for person for it. Yeah, I mean, and the reason why I bring up Twitter or social media is because that's where the reduction is, it is. is really it rampant. Is. It's, it's where it's rampant, yeah. you know, and it's not. There's not a lot of intelligent discourse there <laughs> on these issues. There's some, but not not a lot. Yeah, Twitter's um, like a, the comments section. But if only if you reduce people's comments down to 240 characters, it's uh, it's just about as bad as it gets. Um, doesn't further any real discussion. It's just people screaming louder than it's. It's just like it's like all the trolls came out and joined Twitter and, and then had, you know, again, 240 characters to to slap you down. So then I, you know, I was going to close with just some uh, personal chit chat um, here. Um, you know, this is one of the things I've been thinking about during this pandemic. We're on a year now, going on a year now during the pandemic. Um, how are you and your family been holding up during the pandemic? Good. And, you know, one year ago, I remember I went kayaking for the day, took a long kayak and hike, took my girls to their hockey. My Both my daughters are ice hockey players, and they were getting going to their ice hockey banquet. This was, I believe, March 14th or 15th. Uh, so I had to do a fast hike back to my truck and then pick my kayak up and then grab the get a good shower, shave, grab the girls, drive them up to Princeton. And then we get up there and they're getting ready to play for uh, to go to nationals. And then, boom, it's been canceled. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I'm used to working from home alone. And so it's funny. COVID has made my family actually see each other even more. We've been fortunate. We haven't had any any deaths or anyone that's been infected that's been serious. Um, doing a lot of stuff together, getting out skiing, and you know, your girls' ice hockey's kind of really got pushed back, which was very unfair because, well, I won't get into that. But I live in New Jersey, so you can figure that one out. And uh, yeah, but we've our family's been well, our friends have been well. We've been very very fortunate through this. How about you, Tom? Doing all right. You know, I have my delusions of grandeur when it comes to powerlifting now in my 40s. And that's, <laughs> as you know, we, we joke about that, that I've been doing that. So, I, you know, I before the pandemic, I had the bad knee injury. My left knee exploded and I had that uh, put back together and then um, lost a bunch of weight. And now I've been really focused on lifting. That's sort of how I pass the time taking care of my family. You know, my girls are, you know, they do their remote schooling. They're wonderful students. Um, like you, we haven't had any major infections or anybody that passed away from this. There've been some other tragedies in the family, but nothing related to COVID. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, we've been okay. I, you know, part of what I look out at the world and I see all the suffering during this time, it does, it bothers me tremendously. Um, you know, we, we've been, we've been okay during this and we're pushing forward and doing our thing as, you know, as different as that thing is and as weird as we are in terms of fitting into this foreign policy world. Um, but you know, I look around and there's a lot of people whose lives have been upended. Um, and it's, uh, I don't know, it's very, very tough to watch. And I, I don't, part, part of my, I don't want to say rant, but discussion on the foreign policy schools is because I have the same thought on the domestic side now too. When you look at all this and I, I see all this going on, I think that people should be more willing to question their biases and their ideological priors. And think about issue to issue and really inspect things instead of having this reflexive reaction to everything. Um, it's part, you know, I don't, I don't want to say people should be more open-minded because that just, I don't know, that's too cliche and just too 
too preachy. Tom, maybe but, like compassionate though. I just I see less of that in a situation like this. It's really shocking and I think part of compassion is to listening to other people and, and understanding and feeling. And I see less of that. People attacking people for not doing yeah, this or not doing that. And it's just very – everything is just – because I know we're not breaking any radio ground or podcast ground here, but everything has just become mean-spirited. And that's what's really deflating about all of this, about this, this Yeah, every, everything's becoming should have come together, you know? You know, on, on this stuff on – when it, well – even if you have differences, I mean, it's okay to have differences. Oh, as long absolutely. As you articulate them and have a reasonable discourse. My, my problem, my fear is not that we sh- I don't think we should all agree on everything. Of course not. We should have, we should have uh, fervent disagreements, I think, um, you know, fierce disagreements on things, but within reason, you know, uh, let's debate the facts and what to do about them and the best course forward on all these different issues. And part of what I see completely lacking from the public discourse now is any semblance of reason, you know, uh, we, we joke with a mutual friend of ours that it seems that we have surpassed now and outlived the age of reason once and for all. We now live in a very unreasonable time. Um, and I just, I don't know, maybe I'm being too grim on this. Maybe I'm, uh, maybe uh, things in the past, I don't, I don't want to think, that, I don't want to argue that things in the past were idyllic. They were not. There have always been problems. There's always been hyper irrationality. I just think, though, throughout the course of my adult life and then even throughout this time of the pandemic and, and the post 9-11 era and, and everything that's been going on, that it seems like things have become more and more unreasonable over time. And that that uh, bothers me because it means you can't really have a conversation about anything or have the process where you try and get at the truth or get at what should be done or anything. Right? This, this, it's sort of a breakdown both in our politics and our culture and our society and just everything. Yeah, it's... It's funny. I have a friend uh, that from just probably fourth or fifth grade, and he's an artist. And it's really, you know, I'm not going to, if I told you what he did for his job, you could look him up and know immediately who he is and what he does. So I won't do that. You know, we, we're very much on the different ends of the political spectrum on a lot of issues. Some issues we come, we're still friends because we could sit down and talk to them, and, or we have differences. There's just fewer and fewer people that I could do that with any anymore, and and that's it's it saddens me. I I wish that, you know, I, I like that I that I agree disagree with my friend because this world would be really boring if it was all him or if it was all me. It'd probably be a little bit more fun if it was all him, um, but uh, you know that our differences are what makes us and. We should be able to embrace our differences and discuss them and then put them aside and and have a good time. And we can't do that now. Everything is vicious and personal and believe what I believe or you're a, you're a heretic. And, and I have no room for that. We see that in our, our profession. And now we're starting to see it in, in our personal lives. And it's, it's, it's very demoralizing. But I remain hopeful. Yeah, I don't want to get off on a tangent. We talked about this in a previous episode with one of our colleagues, uh, Devi Garnstein-Ross, that briefly talked about it in one of the podcasts. This, you know, our profession, the counterterrorism community, I mean, there were, you know, definitely attempts to blackball us and you know blacklist us in the past and um, because we didn't fit the dogma of what people thought and we just had specific reasons for thinking differently you know and yet nobody you know there were times you know I was saying this to somebody the other day you know it's funny that we're now yet again at this point where you know the predominant thinking within the U.S. foreign policy establishment is to try and move on of course from post 9-11 conflicts and, and you know some ways I a lot of ways I agree with that um but it's this push to explain away and pretend like ISIS and Al Qaeda don't matter. And I just said, I said to this person, 
that ain't new, right? I mean, yeah. most of my professional career in doing this, that's been that's been yeah. the drive, you know. Uh, and we've we've lived through we've lived through this throughout almost that entire time. There's always, that's why you know if you listen to previous episodes, we talk about disconnecting the dots. That's where I got that from because you know more than a decade ago now, uh, you know many years ago now, when I first started writing about this stuff publicly, that was the drive was to disconnect the dots, and it just. The thing was that it took on for some people personal dimension, yes. personal animosity about it, which I never had. Um, but you know, I'm happy to have uh, that conversation about whether you know Al Qaeda, right. the Islamic State, and all these other groups are they still relevant? Are they still a threat? I'd love to well, see how down they and work. Have, the basics yeah. of how they work. Yeah, sure. The, the point is that the field, the field doesn't have those conversations, right. so it's not. It's dogma. You know, it's too much, you know, yeah, it's too much dogma, and that, I think that's basically how I want to conclude this episode as a, as a um, a call to arms against dogma, right? Is that basically, you know, at least try and think for yourself, think about what you're doing. If you're president of the United States, try and think about the decision points that are actually in front of you, not what everybody wants it to be. You know, actually see see the board as it is, how things are, are really playing out. And try and actually listen to what the real facts are in any given issue, not, not don't pretend there's something they aren't, right? Absolutely, could not agree more. All right. Well, that was a little bit of a curveball for you, Bill, and for our listeners here in the last half of the episode here. But what the hell is our podcast? We do what we want to do. Talk about what we want to talk about. Uh, Thank you to our listeners for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. All right. See you again next week. Mm